The world is a complex place. If you know this better than BitTorrent inventor and Chia CEO Bram Cohen. He spent the last 30 years digging into some of the most intriguing quandaries and toughest challenges out there. From technology and tokens to interpersonal relationships and AI, these days Bram is leading the live conversation on the audio-only social network known as Clubhouse. So put on your thinking cap, top off that drink, and strap in as Coindesk presents this episode of Hard Problems with Bram Cohen. There's huge amounts of over-provisioned storage capacity in the world. Once the data is created and the final capacity, it doesn't matter what storage medium your data is on as long as it can respond to the challenges fast enough. There are some very deep issues with what are called helmet attacks. But once you have final capacity, you put it on the cheapest thing you can possibly find, which today is hard drives. What I believe is going to happen long term is rather different from what you see happening today. This episode is brought to you by Nexo.io and Bitstamp. It was recorded with a live Clubhouse audience on April 5th, 2021. In this episode, we'll be discussing BitTorrent inventor Bram Cohen's newly launched Chia network and specifically how and why it does distributed consensus differently than the proof-of-work and proof-of-stake systems we're used to. To round out the discussion, we're joined by two Chia community members, J.M. Hans and Michelle Erb, who have been spending a lot of time plotting and farming in Chia's proof-of-space and time system. That's proofs-of-space-and-time system. Later, we'll open up the discussion for your questions, so go ahead and raise your hands if you're in our live Clubhouse audience as you think of them or need a little more clarity. But before that, Bram, let's quickly cover the basics. So what I want to kind of start with is, what's the most important hard problem that you are trying to solve with Chia? Well, there's two pretty big categories of things. So I would say the most important one is doing cryptocurrency in a way that's more decentralized and less wasteful. So I'm being wishy-washy on answering the question by giving multiple things here. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Like I said, we're just like keeping this very high level for this because then you guys are going to talk in great detail about all of this stuff. Yeah. So uh, it's very hard to do this because, well, it's very hard to make a cryptocurrency to begin with. A cryptocurrency really is a secure, decentralized database, which sounds completely oxymoronic to have all three of those things at once. So it has this crazy contraption in order to work at all. And then to remove the waste from it requires a lot more crazy contraption things on top of that. <laughs> it requires threading a needle very, very carefully. Yeah, they and talk then, about how you're not supposed to create your own crypto, but it seems like you've done something that's a little bit, uh, maybe not that, right? But you've got kind of this new consensus system. So, I mean, like, let's just kind of jump to that. Why invent a new consensus system compared to the ones we see out there today? Yeah, well, the thing you just mentioned is uh, there's this old saying in cryptography of don't roll your own crypto. Not meaning don't roll your own cryptocurrency, meaning don't roll your own cryptography. And I unfortunately have done a bunch of that. <laughs> um, there's a bunch of layers to that. One is don't make your own primitives. Uh, and another is don't like make your own ways of putting them together, which is good advice for almost everyone almost all the time. Once in a great while, you actually have to do it. And there's a good reason for doing it. And when you do do it, you need to be really careful and know what you're doing and pull in help from experts to at a minimum look over what you're doing. And I have done some of that here. <laughs> okay. So at a very high level, what's the difference or what's kind of the most important difference perhaps between Bitcoin's mining and Chia's farming? Yeah. So 
it has to do with what is the bottleneck on the system? What is the resource that's being measured here? There's this core idea behind Nakamoto consensus, the essential insight is in order to have a secure distributed database, we need a consensus algorithm. When you and I get into an argument about what the current state of the system is, we need some way that we're going to come to agreement on this. And so there's this rule that a blockchain has weight and weight is difficult to add to. It requires something that's computationally difficult to make happen. And when you and I get into an argument about what the current state is, we compare the weights of what we have and whoever has the greater weight wins and the other person downloads from them whatever they have and switches over to the other person's version of the state of the database. And you try to make it so the vast overwhelming majority of the time, this is just additions that more stuff is being added to the blockchain. Blockchain being an actual word that has actual meaning. So there's a question of how do you measure weight? What's going on here? And it's very, very hard to make it so that in the end, the blockchain isn't just a matter of measure mostly of how much electricity was burnt using custom hardware on this whole thing. Uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, if you want to know what Satoshi's vision was, uh, he made it pretty clear in the white paper that they were hoping for uh, one CPU, one vote. They specifically said one IP address, one vote isn't good, but maybe one CPU, one vote is good. Clearly having this idea that the essential cost would be amortization of the manufacturing costs of CPUs, of which there's a lot in the world that it's expensive to make CPUs and most CPUs are sitting around doing nothing most of the time. And this appears to be an underutilized resource that you can simply leverage for this consensus process. Things have not worked out that way at all (laughs) Uh, for two reasons. Number one, because you use custom hardware, always inevitably, will beat general purpose CPUs. And the other one being that there's a reason CPUs sit around not doing much. It's because to run, they need to burn electricity. And most of the costs of mining Bitcoin go into burning electricity. So this is a very... uh, You got a bunch of coal coins going on, (laughs) burning a lot of electricity, doing really not much of anything when they're adding to the security of the consensus algorithm. I've always thought about Bitcoin as like a competitive money burning process when it comes to Nakamoto consensus. So effectively, what you're saying is you can keep the competitive part of that process without requiring sort of that we have a list of registered miners, so to speak, but we can take out the, the money burning part. Yeah, the counter idea is a really subtle one that Satoshi was onto something with this uh, one CPU, one vote thing. It doesn't quite work, but we can get one gigabyte, one vote to work, that we can make it so that it's excess storage capacity. It is the bottleneck in the system rather than computational power. Okay, let's table that for a second. And now kind of switch over to, like, if you look at most projects that are out there, most notably Ethereum, they also agree with you on some of your assessments about proof of work, but they're going about sort of their best approach at a very different way, right? Instead of jumping to a different form of proof of work where you're changing out how the work is conducted, so to speak, which is what kind of sounds like you're doing with yours, they're actually moving to a proof of stake model, which requires 
nothing like that and instead is based around token holdings and kind of game theory around incentives for holders and like attack takeovers and stuff like that so kind of what's the if not difference then what's the issue that you take with that type of approach well proof of stake isn't a step forward proof of stake is very much a step backwards proof of stake is what people were trying to do before nakamoto consensus became a thing and proof of stake at best is not really a truly decentralized system. It's kind of a decentralized, centralized system. <laughs> it's, uh, the current stakeholders are deciding what's going on in the thing. And if they were all to just disappear, if they were all to just vanish off the face of the earth, the system would just grind to a halt and be stopped and not go forward at all. And they really are running the show. It's very unlike Nakamoto consensus, where literally at any moment, anyone who's currently running the thing, ever, all of them could just vanish and be replaced with other people, and everything would continue working just fine. So, I mean, do you take issue then with the idea that stakeholders, you know, you're kind of viewing as a centralized problem. I think that a lot of people look at a stakeholder system and say, well, these are the people who are clearly the most incentivized to be good actors in the system because they have stake in that system, so to speak. So why doesn't that game theory work here for you? Well, the whole point is to not have the game theory. This is really marketing spin <laughs> that's being done here. Having bonding and slashing are bad things. Having governance is a bad thing. These are things you want to avoid. You want it to really truly be a decentralized thing, not a centralized thing where you have engineered your politics really well. But that's not what you want to be doing. We have governments to do that. Okay, great. So I think with the basics out of the way, let's invite Michelle and JM into the conversation. I'll be stepping back to manage the stage to anyone listening live. Go ahead and raise your hand if you have a question or don't understand something. And Bram, can you uh, give our guests a quick introduction and then over to you? John Michael and Michelle are both whales, I think is a fair <laughs> description. They're both active farmers on Chia and got on the train early. So they know a lot about plotting and farming, and I'm guessing people are going to want to hear a lot about plotting, <laughs> since there's so much excitement around that right now. Just to kind of orient people around the terminology, you know, plotting is the act of like actually creating the data that gets stored. And it's very computationally and time intensive to actually kind of prevent attacks. And then farming is the act of once the data is there, you just have to prove that you're storing the data. And that can be extremely energy efficient because you're just having a hard drive that's basically just sitting idle. And so really, the goals around farming quickly expand to, you know, how many hard drives can you shove into a very small place at the lowest power and, you know, manage that very efficiently. Yeah, and what I was talking about, about don't, <laughs> don't roll your own crypto earlier. One place where we've most definitely rolled our own crypto here is on the actual core proof of space algorithm itself. And also this uh, proof of time thing, which works in, in a really interesting way. Both of those are original pieces of cryptography and the proof of space algorithm I personally invented actually, and is really much, much better than the other proof of space algorithms people uh, have come up with. There are some very deep issues with what are called Hellman attacks. That's the same Hellman of Diffie-Hellman on proof of space algorithms that you might want to do that, that are very difficult to stop. And I figured out fairly deep insight into how to stop those and came up with a proof of space algorithm that really involves almost no resources at all while it's just sitting around doing its proof of space. So I started setting up my computer for plotting. I have a spare PC that I attempted to create a couple of different plots on. 
And it was definitely very time intensive. I had to abort the process a couple of times because I had something come up that, you know, that like I needed to use the computer for. I used it like once a day and would come back the next day and discovered that like it was still running and it was really occupying a lot of kind of the resources. What actually is happening to my computer when it is doing this plotting process? How is it proving to the system that it has this space that's being devoted for these purposes? Um, intuitively, you can think of it as it's generating a whole bunch of bingo cards and storing them in a file. So when challenges come up on the network, it looks up its responses and sees if it has the opportunity to declare bingo in response to this. Okay, so the more sort of space you're devoting to this, the more bingo cards you're generating up front. And then does your computer periodically have to generate new bingo cards or are these kind of like permanent fixtures once they've been plotted? They are permanent bingo cards. Okay, so then the process of farming is taking the already plotted bingo cards that are stored on your device and then comparing those against, you know, the winning numbers that come up in the kind of distributed system then. Yeah, it's comparing them to the results of running proofs of time on top of old winning bingo cards. So later challenges are based on earlier challenges, but you don't actually know what those later challenges are going to be at the time you declare your winnings. Okay, so proof of space is what we're primarily talking about when we're talking about plotting. And then it sounds like proof of time comes in later on. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, proof of time is used a lot in the actual generation of the blockchain. It's used to make it so that you don't know what the effects of your actions are going to be ahead of time on the blockchain so people can't just grind, so they can't just like run like a million versions of history and pick out the one that works out best for them. And also to make it so that someone who's attacking the system can't take a relatively small amount of resources and just redo like years of history with it. Okay, so I think that makes sense to me too. So basically what you're saying is that if you didn't have proof of time, then proof of space would be something you could just generate with the same device and the same storage space over and over and over again. And if you were to do that, then it would kind of break the limited resource that you're trying to capture there, which is the hard drive space that's being devoted to this purpose. Yeah, if you're doing things over and over again, it kind of turns into using computational power again, which is not what you want. Right, so blacking the proof of time, it becomes a more traditional proof of work mechanism that requires ongoing effort, which is the point of what you're trying to get rid of. Yeah, yeah. It actually winds up being bad because it's not clear exactly what the bottleneck is there. You really, really want very clear bottlenecks and very clear optimal behavior when you're talking about consensus algorithms. It's supposed to be measuring something very coherent so you can make it so there really are no or as little as possible any economies of scale. Yeah, yeah and maybe an easier way to think about this, like in Bitcoin, you have hashing power. In Chia, you have just the total amount of capacity you're storing. And the total hashing power that's on the network is equivalent in Chia to the net space, which is just the total amount of capacity that's out there. And then anytime a challenge comes in, your probability of winning is how much capacity you have divided by how much capacity is out there on the network. So the math is actually extremely simple to compute on what your actual mean winnings are going to be. But this is where the magic comes in. So somebody with just a spare hard drive can go take you know a week or two to go plot that data. And then now they have a chance to win a couple of Chia, you know, per day or every couple of days, which, you know, today on Bitcoin is not possible. Like an average person can't just pick up a piece of hardware and then run it and then win a Bitcoin. 
are there plotting pools or farming pools, or do you anticipate there being um, farming pools, or is it not required in this type of approach? There will be. There's less need for them because there are so many more reward events that happen. However, <laughs> there's been very clear indications that people do want there to be pooling. So we've put hooks into the underlying protocols for there to be pooling protocols. In order to build the one that people really want to use right now, which has the big feature that you can jump between pools, you can be pointed at one pool and then decide, oh, I'm done with that pool. I want to use this other pool and then switch over to it. In order to have that functionality, you need actual transactions happening because you need something on the chain that has the state that says what pool you're currently pointed to. So we don't have transactions on our blockchain yet, and we actually have to implement the pooling protocol. But that one is very, very high on the list of things to do. So we're actively working on building that right now. So there will be pools soon. Okay, with pooling, you're saying that people are interested in it. Is that because they would like more frequent reward events? Or is it because eventually the system grows in much the same way that proof of work systems have? And the sheer amount of power makes it exceptionally unlikely that an individual would actually see a reward, you know, with like a normal individual size uh, farming effort. Well, there's a good and a bad reason why people want pooling. The good reason is that they want to reduce the variance in their rewards instead of one unit of reward that happens on average once a year and likely much less than that because net space is growing very rapidly, they would like reward events that happen like, you know, weekly or daily, right? That's the good reason that they want to lower the variance in their rewards. The bad reason is a lot of people are very confused and have this impression that the greater variance implies lower expected value, which it does not. So like if you play the lottery, that has negative expected value by a lot, but that's because it has negative expected value. Just because something rarely gives you rewards doesn't mean that it's not a good bet from a amount of money you make out of it standpoint. So if you have a one in a million chance of winning a million dollars, that is net even from an expected value standpoint. If you have a one in a million chance of winning $10 million, that's very, very positive. I think that's why you see some of the magic in the Chia community right now, which is really exciting because it kind of brings back that, you know, building systems, you know, being able to put in a very little amount of money or take even reusing hardware that you can buy on Craigslist or eBay or something, and then turning that into something that's generating Chia, you know, whereas, you know, in Bitcoin, that's just not possible, right? The barrier of entry for an individual person participating in the protocol is very high number of amount of CapEx as far as equipment you have to spend on mining equipment. And so yeah. that's been the fun part of Chia in the beginning is, you can get started with almost nothing. Yeah, we have 4,000 and change reward events per day happening right now, which means even modest setups like 10 terabytes. Actually, I don't know off the top of my head what it is, but 10 terabytes, I think it's like once a week on average are expected to get a reward event. I'm not sure off the top of my head right now. Okay, so that all makes sense to me. Uh, let's take our first question. So I had a question for Bram, um, mm -hmm. which is... Um, like five, 10 years from now, how do you think of Chia? Like, is it more like where you see a lot of DeFi apps being built on it? Or is it more like Bitcoin, but like a better Bitcoin? Well, definitely more like a better Bitcoin. There's this fallacy that's happening with a lot of DeFi apps, which is they're claiming that blockchains are just this magic pixie dust. 
which they are a little bit, but it only does certain things. So it is true that if you use Nakamoto consensus properly, you can transact with no trusted third party in the middle, or this is such an amorphous trusted third party that you can actually trust it without trusting any one of the members participating in this thing that you would need a ludicrous conspiracy to have an actual attack happen here. What it can't do, what it's a ridiculous fallacy to claim it can do is remove credit risk from lending. <laughs> That's something it cannot do. And there's a huge number of DeFi projects that are basically claiming it does that, or they're claiming, oh, well, we'll just crank up the amount of collateral and such. And people have tried this in the finance industry since time immemorial, and this garbage is not any better just because you're doing it on a blockchain on the internet than just because you're doing it with a bank. But there are lots of things that you can do without that. If you're just trying to move funds from point A to point B, or secure your own funds based on some formula, or tokenize something, or do exchange, these are all things that can be done without any credit at all. So that's my big beef with a lot of these DeFi projects. They're claiming to have some magic pixie dust around credit risk, and that's just a ridiculous claim. That's just not true. Great. Thanks. Thank you very much for your question. So looks like Tur would like to come up. Let's pull him. I'll save my question for afterwards. Hey, Bram. As you know, I'm, I've been a bit skeptical about the claim of Chia being, you know, an eco-friend. I guess it's all relative. So it's like eco-friendlier mining protocol than Bitcoin is. And so I'm wondering, like, just because I know for this platform, like just on a high level, I want to understand a bit more about where you're coming from. Am I right that the core of the argument is that you know, geo farmers, that basically their the hardware itself isn't going to be very specialized towards farming because the hard drive market worldwide is is just so big that you don't have the same like ASIC specialization thing. Or am I wrong? And that's not the core. Uh, yeah, argument. it's a subtle argument where that's definitely part of it of what makes it work. So the idea is that there's huge amounts of over-provisioned storage capacity in the world. And what I believe is going to happen long-term is rather different from what you see happening today. Today, it might be profitable. People are certainly acting like it's profitable to purchase storage media in order to farm it and get rewards for doing that. This might, in the end, prove to be very, very profitable, depending on what the price of Chia will be in the future. I have no idea what that might be. but. I believe that long-term, and long-term might be like six months from now, this will be a very unprofitable thing to do. Because what's going to start happening is that places that have huge amounts of storage, just because they have storage that they use for internal use, are going to start farming off of that storage capacity and leveraging that already wasted resource, of which there's ludicrous amounts of that in the world. And that's where the eco-efficiency gains really, really come in is from that. But isn't that the same argument that, you know, Bitcoiners nowadays are using is that there's just so much stranded electricity. And so the only thing Bitcoin does is just lap up. Yeah, there's not not stranded electricity. That's not a thing. (laughs) No, but, you know, to your point is, um, one is we understand hard drives really well. There's many large Mm -hmm. hyperscale data centers like Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft that deploy you know, hundreds of exabytes of hard drives. Just this year alone, there's expected to be 1.2 zettabytes of hard drives shipped into the market. So 
just today, if you, on average, by the way, I actually wrote the model to predict the uh, network power consumption of Chia. And I have that up on chiapower.org and you can see it. Today, the assumed power of the Chia network is 320 kilowatts. You know, compare that with a Bitcoin at 160 gigawatts. Uh, sorry, 16 gigawatts. So there's two orders of magnitude difference, right? You have to go to giga to mega, mega to kilowatt. You're 50,000 times less the energy consumption of Bitcoin today. And even if the Chia network can scale, you know, 10x or 20x what it is today, it'll still be a very, very small percentage of what the energy consumption of Bitcoin is. And that is contrasting with what Bram said, which is I'm just actually assuming that the hard drives that are dedicated for Chia farming are actually consuming energy and are, in fact, you know, dedicated to Chia. Yeah, so that's definitely part of it. Like, if that weren't the case, the argument wouldn't work. The thing I don't want to sound overly dismissive of is the argument that, like, hey, isn't this just resulting in people building storage just for the purpose of farming, and really it's just off-putting whatever real resource consumption is happening off to that, like, front-loading thing and amortizing it. And that is a worry. So I want to make clear I'm not being completely dismissive of it. I just think that we're going to be seeing a lot of these resources that was already done with going into it. But definitely part of why this thing works is because it's able to use storage, which you can't ASIC. So it is leveraging this stuff that's already sitting out there. But like, if I mean, this is kind of pushing the argument, but like, you know, wouldn't the fair mental exercise be to, you know, just project like whatever, you know, $10 trillion size or some kind of abstract size. Imagine Bitcoin is that size and Chia is the exact same size. And then, you know, theorizing like, well, what percentage of, let's say, the amount of money that is changing hands every day, what percentage are people going to want to pay for security? And in Bitcoin, you could argue, maybe it's going to be like, like 1% on an annual basis is going to be paid to security. And so... You know, given that this is a variation of proof of work, wouldn't that be similar for Chia? And then wouldn't Chia farmers just spend up to that limit because they know what the reward is that they're going to get? And so they're going to go just margins eventually get crushed. It's like eventually it becomes like a utility business. So their margins are very thin. You know, from that point of view, it's hard to understand. And again, I'm not yes. big on Bitcoin mining being very polluting. I'm not really big on that. But just the comparison, I struggle a bit yeah. with still... Yeah. Yeah, we said it, but it was very, again, very subtle, right? Whereas Bitcoin miners are dedicated. All they do is shock 56 hashes. They serve no purpose besides doing Bitcoin mining. A hard drive can store data. So if somebody in the result of Chia invents a hard drive that can store 10 times the capacity of the hard drive today, that would be a net benefit to society versus inventing something that does faster shots to 56 hashes, which serves no other purpose. And, you know, the hard drive market's already pretty large, right? About $20 billion of hard drives, about $30 billion of SSDs every year. That is much, much larger than the CapEx that is spent on any Bitcoin hardware. So you could argue that the security of the network, if it's proportional to the amount of CapEx spent on the actual storage media or whatever is securing the network, you could argue that already it's much, much bigger than what Bitcoin has today. I'm definitely going to read up more on chiapower.org. Thanks for that link. And uh, I mean, I definitely grant that at least intuitively for me, there's an argument here. Like, this is not like a faux bullshit argument. Like, I feel like there's a debate here to be had. So I appreciate your thoughts. Yeah, there's definitely this expectation that a lot of places are going to be doing things where they were already over-provisioning for whatever reason. And what they're going to do is they're going to fill up this over-provisioned stuff with plots and farm it for a while. 
And then whenever they need to actually use the space, they're going to delete some plots and go ahead and use the space. And that's going to be the bulk of farming space that's in the network eventually. Certainly people's desktop machines are already like that. People over-provision their desktops ridiculously. Makes sense. Thanks for your question, Turb. Looking for the best way to unlock your crypto's liquidity? Nexo.io is exactly what you need. Borrow against your digital assets at just 5.9% APR. Earn passive income with yields of up to 12%. And swap between more than 75 market pairs with the instant Nexo exchange. Try the Nexo wallet app to get the whole 360 degrees of crypto banking. Get started at Nexo.io. Secure, regulated, and reliable, Bitstamp is the cryptocurrency exchange of choice for more than 4 million investors and traders worldwide. Since 2011, Bitstamp has been a trailblazer in security, head of the class in personal customer service, and dedicated to making buying crypto fast and easy. Whether you are investing on our desktop platform and mobile app or trading on our speedy APIs, Bitstamp gives you all the tools you need to reach your crypto goals. Visit bitstamp.net to learn more. Bitstamp, for all the ways we crypto. I mean, one thing that I've been thinking about a lot while we've been talking about this is that, JM, to one of the points that you made earlier in the episode, you know, like right now, the network is so new that regardless, you know, of like what the eventual characteristics of it are, it still has this exciting, anybody can participate kind of thing going on for it. But really, like that's been true of almost every one of these projects that's come out. The question is, what does it look like in a year? What does it look like in five years? To Tur's point, what does it look like when it's the same in terms of other kind of fundamentals of some of the bigger networks? Because I even remember, you know, not too long ago that we were having this conversation about Ethereum. And one of Ethereum's big initial selling points was that it was so much cheaper to use for many of the applications that it's used for today than Bitcoin, because at the time, Bitcoin was very expensive. And now that situation is kind of reversed now that Ethereum has gotten to be so big. So I think that that's yeah. some of what Tura was kind of touching on there is that yeah, his well, arguments that was, are easy to make so early. That's, the, that's talking about the on-chain environment, which is a whole other thing. Chia does have a really, really powerful on-chain programming environment that is better than the other things, but that's unrelated to the consensus stuff. And actually, a lot of Ethereum's claims about what it did and what it was going to do were just bullshit <laughs> or just wrong. Okay. So if we've got any Ethereum folks in the audience who want to want to explore that a little bit further, go ahead and raise your hand. But for now, let's jump over to Tarun. Welcome to the stage, Tarun. It's yours. Hey, Adam. Thanks, uh, GM, Bram. Bram, I have the pleasure of interviewing you in my podcast. And Michelle, I had a quick question. So I started as a plotter you know, as a Chia farmer. So Tour's point, you know, so I wanted to just add on to that is I'm a small to, I would say a mid-sized farmer. And so for me, it has been a no-brainer in the sense that, you know, I do some video editing, I do some um, audio editing for my podcast, and I always need like that extra storage lying around. So for me, I just add stuff like when my storage fills up, and then I just run the Chia, you know, desktop, this installer in the back. So as a small farmer, I do see like a value to it because like the actual money I'm making or the Chia coins I'm making there. So my question, I think it was perhaps directed more towards the conversation that um, what do you guys see the future for like the small to mid-sized farmers and how it can like uh, with the pooling coming in, how would that play out? 
one thing I need to make clear with pooling is, unfortunately, plots made today won't work with pools made in the future. A plot that uses pooling has to be made specifically to use that pooling. So, um, yeah, but once we come out with pooling protocol, then you will be able to make plots that do uh, the pooling stuff. Gotcha. Yeah, I was not too much keen on the pooling part, but more on just like a small farmer, small to mid-sized farmer like me, just chugging away and just uh, supporting the network and also, you know, earning Chia uh, in the process. Yeah, there's some guys that put together a website called uh, Chia Calculator. You know, you can pop in what your total capacity is and then projected, you know, net space growth. What, you know, one thing, you know, nobody knows what the network is going to look like three months from now or six months from now. I have no clue. We know what's happened in a couple of weeks of growth and we can kind of model that out. But, you know, you can pop in some different scenarios and say what's going to happen. And, you know, we've done this a million times. And even these people that have, you know, just a couple hard drives full, even if the network gets really big, you can still get, you know, a couple of rewards, you know, a couple of weeks or a month. And to the point earlier, which was, okay, are people going to want to do this? Well, if it's literally just two hard drives, you have plugged into your desktop, it's on anyways, and you just leave it on and has to do nothing but check it every once in a while. And then you get a couple of rewards, you know, once or twice a month, and those rewards end up being valuable someday, it'll be worth it. And it's very easy to do that, you know, ownership. Once the coin price gets set, it'll actually be much easier to do that assessment. But right now, you know, basically you can predict, you know, how many Chia you'll win per day based on the amount of you know, capacity you have versus the projected future net space. And it's a fairly easy calculation to do. Yeah, that's what I do. I just set it and forget it. And, you know, minimal supervision or like sometimes I'm in the community all the time. And I know there was a talk around just uh, starting would be like 20 petabytes, but it came ballooned to like 100. So the expectation is one, like... You know, the demand all of a sudden has risen. So yeah, nobody can predict that. So thank you. Thanks for answering those questions. Great. Thank you for your question. Next to the stage, um, your screen name is Bitcoin yeah. Numantia. Yeah, that's right. Um, I was going to ask JM a question since uh, in his profile, he says uh, product manager for uh, NVMe SSDs. And uh, one thing I've heard about these hard drives is that uh, they have a certain life expectancy with, uh, I think it's bit rot uh, with the reading and write, well, especially the writing on it. So what would be the life expectancy of these type of hard drives if they were being used uh, to mine a Chia coin? Yes, you kind of mixed two things in there. So uh, SSDs have a finite life, and that's called endurance, because the flash NAND that is used in SSDs has a finite number of program array cycles that you can write to it before it wears out. And that's very well understood. Intel and others, you know, there's lots of models on the internet that show exactly how that works. And we've gone pretty deep even in the Chia wiki on how that works as it pertains to Chia plotting. Now, hard drives, the way hard drives are rated are on a terabyte per year workload basis. Hard drives have moving parts. They have a motor that spins the actual disks around, and then they have actuators and heads that read and write the data. And the hard drives are rated for a certain amount of workload per year. So Chia is a write once, read many, and the reading, the actual amount of data that you read to do the challenges is very, very small. So once the data is on the drive, this workload is very, very nice to a hard drive for Chia. It is not like a aggressive, dangerous workload for a drive. You just fill up the drive with data and then you're just doing some random seeks every once in a while to make sure that the data is on there, right? Because part of this consensus algorithm circles around the fact that you have to prove that you're actually storing the data and not gaming the system. So you have to read the data every once in a while, but it is not a very hard workload on the hard drive. So is it better to use mechanical hard drives? Uh, there's no big advantage if you're using the SSDs? Chia has two parts. One is plotting and one is farming. 
for farming, once the data is created and the final capacity, it doesn't matter what storage medium your data is on as long as it can respond to the challenges fast enough. SSDs are faster for creating the plots. And so the SSDs are used in Chia for the plotting process to speed up that temporary storage needed for the plotting. But once you have final capacity, you put it on the cheapest thing you can possibly find, which today is hard drives. Uh, now, Bram said something different, which was, you know, today, you know, a 512 gigabyte SSD is cheaper than the cheapest hard drive. And that's why if you go buy a you know, $300 laptop from Dell or anybody else, it comes with a cheap SSD today. And you, SSDs now became cheaper than hard drives is because you can see, you know, Xbox and PS5 are using, you know, 512 gig and one terabyte SSDs, you know, in the gaming consoles because they're now cheaper than hard drives. So in a couple of years from now, it'll be pretty common for people to buy two terabyte or three terabyte or four terabyte SSDs for their laptops because they are just not that expensive. And if a user is only using like 500 gigabytes of data, then, hey, why not store a couple of terabytes of Gia and just leave it on there? It's not going to consume any extra energy versus, you know, basically my uh, laptop running as it normally would. And that's where it gets really interesting in the future. When you start farming to get it going, you have to make your plot files. That's the thing that can wear down SSDs. Making a plot file of a certain size is equivalent to, I believe, writing out that amount of data five times-ish. It's a lot more. Oh, really? About the minimum plot size is what is called the K32. Last time we've looked, it, it wrote about 1.8 terabytes. So that would be about 18 times oh, the amount of the final size. Oh. But I believe with uh, some of the very leading edge latest versions, that will or can come down a bit. I want to make another comment here that it's not an absolute must that you have to use flash drives for plotting. I have done a lot of just hard drive plotting as well. It is just not as fast, but it is also not 10 times slower. It is slower, but uh, it's also a very workable uh, solution too. Okay, great. Thank you for your question. So following up on that, so like I said, I've been experimenting with plotting myself. I have a couple of spare hard drives and so I was messing around with it. And I've used kind of both conventional and SSD drives. So like what's kind of the expected difference? And like what's a normal amount of time that it should take to kind of do that initial plotting work? Jam, kind of upfront in our conversation, you mentioned like a couple of weeks. Like what's a reasonable expectation for someone who hasn't gone through this process yet? Yeah, I think I said that in regards to like how long it's going to take to fill up a drive. You know, a reasonable I have a guide on the if you go to the um Chia Wiki, there's a like Google Docs that I wrote. And it's also posted on our website, chiadecentral.com. But uh, basically, it's just a guide for $1,000. You can build a system that plots about three terabytes a day. I believe that to be probably nearly the most cost-effective system versus somebody that already owns a system, you're right, and they can just buy you know, some dedicated hardware to help plot it. But yeah, three terabytes a day you know, is how you measure the plotting systems. You can measure it in number of K32s you can output per day. But a more reasonable metric is how many terabytes of plots you're actually putting out per day. And you'll see that the systems vary very greatly in the community. And the question you asked is the million dollar question is, you know, is my system doing what it's supposed to? And, you know, we spend a lot of time in the chat and Keybase helping people, <laughs> you know, get there, right? Like, yeah, I ran this crappy drive and I'm getting terrible times. What do I do? I'm like, well, you know, buy a new SSD that doesn't suck. Uh, but, uh, you, know, you know, we debug a lot of those types of issues here in the uh, Keybase channel. So. So I hear that, but I still didn't hear a reasonable expectation in terms of like hours or days. Like, is there oh, a normal? Yeah. The very fastest cake was 32 that we've has ever been created. I think Michelle and I are kind of racing to have the, the number one. It's about three hours, maybe three and a half hours. But that is kind of like a vanity metric, right? You're producing the very fastest one. 
isn't the same as getting maximum CPU and the DRAM and storage utilization out of the system and, and outputting the maximum amount of terabytes per day. And that's kind of how we think about this, which is a reasonable expectation is like, you have a random desktop computer. If you don't want to invest any additional hardware, you could probably do, you know, one to two terabytes a day. If it's a pretty new system, if you have more dedicated hardware, like, Hey, I want to go spend 300 bucks and upgrade my desktop with a fancy SSD. Okay. Now you're talking about three terabytes per day. There's a market in plotting services right now. People somewhat hilariously are wanting to get in on now and acquiring storage capacity for it, or some people already acquired storage capacity and didn't think ahead with getting their plotting rigs <laughs> set up appropriately to go with it. And so a bunch of our early whales finished plotting all the space that they had acquired with their plotting rigs. And now people are like sneaker netting over like rather large amounts of drives to be plot on and then taking them back again so they can farm off of those. Rather literal data warehousing going on. <laughs> Maybe as a rule of thumb, what I have seen is if you do directly uh, plotting on hard drives, you see about two to three plots per day per core and process. And if you do that with some of the best flash that is available, you will see three to four per core per day. So multiply that by the amount of cores that you have, then you will get to these numbers that are between 25 to 35 plots for an eight core CPU, where you would plot on either eight hard drives directly, or you still have those eight hard drives, but you do the plotting on two to three uh, enterprise-grade uh, flash drives. Okay, thanks for that. So another thing that I'm curious about is when you're actually going through the plotting process, you select the size of the plot that you're going to create. And there's the number of space it will eventually take up, and then there's the larger amount of space that it'll take up while it's during the creation process. And all of these have the, you know, like a K number associated with them. Can you kind of talk about that a little bit? And specifically, is it like the way that it ramps up it does not seem to be linear, right? It seems like it grows at a much faster rate than that. What does that mean in terms of like how you then farm with it? What are the implications of that? So the very brief answer to your last question is people mostly just use K32s everywhere. It's set up specifically so that all that really matters is the amount of space that you have allocated to the farming process. And it doesn't matter what the mix of Ks is that you're using for that. The size of the plot file is dependent on the K value, and mostly it doubles every time you add one to K. It actually grows a little bit faster than that. What it really does is the size is K plus one half times two to the K. So like a K33 is like about 3% bigger than a doubling of a K32 in terms of size. Sometimes people will play some games where they want to like perfectly fill up a hard drive. So they figure out the exact ratio of K32s to K33s to exactly fill up their drive. Because <laughs> every time you replace two K32s with one K33, it uses up a little bit more space. So you want to like not have any like excess fraction of a plot size on your drive there. So you can play games and fill that up really cleanly. Uh, that's kind of a neat trick. For the most part, people prefer using K32s because K33s just take longer to plot and more memory to plot than K32s do. So just out of expedience, people use K32. 
So as an idiot new user trying to find the biggest K value that I could fit onto my hard drive was probably not the right thing to do then. Is there any reason to use those large numbers besides trying to optimize your hard drive space? Not really. A lot of the reason they're there is for future proofing. If in the future people's desktops wind up having like a hundred times as much storage capacity as they do today, it could be that just all the seeks that have to be done while you're doing regular farming are going to become onerous enough that K32s are a little too small. And because you have to do fewer seeks with larger pots, people are going to be preferring larger pots. But that's all speculative right now. Okay, great. That makes a lot of sense to me. Okay, cool. So folks, we're coming up on the end of the show. If you have any questions you would like to ask, go ahead and raise your hand. I see we've just had a hand raise. And we've got two hands raising. All right, so we're pulling people up. All right, welcome to the stage, Paradox. It's yours. I'm curious if I set up a basic plot in farming, and then I get, you know, an external hard drive where I want to move stuff off of the SSD, like the farming off of the SSD. Can I move it after the fact, or it's just too late for that? For the purposes of farming, it doesn't matter where your plots are. So if you have an old drive that you're just going to throw out for whatever reason, and you get a new drive, you could like copy over all the plots from the old drive to the new drive so you don't have to redo plotting for the new thing before you get rid of the old drive but you can tell it the new location you're talking about a file copy <laughs> yeah. yeah no yes, I, I understand i was just looking at the oh, interface yeah. i did not see how to tell the existing plots to look elsewhere or it's not really the hierarchy oh. of how that's set up but um Oh, now I lost my other question. <laughs> oh, yeah. So the, the other question I think you're asking is, can you farm from multiple drives? And you can add as many different locations as you want. I think and if you're using the GUI, you just click on the farm tab and then click a little button that says add a directory and you can point it to whatever the uh, external you formatted is. But uh, yeah, it's, it's super oh, easy. I, rem I remember the nuance. Uh, so um, basically, if for any reason, like, so I was trying to add plots and my one terabyte was, I guess, too small or I miscalculated stuff or I added too much and it was kind of, choking and ended up uh, freezing is um, deleting a plot and replotting just to kind of start from scratch. Does that have any detriment other than resetting the clock of whatever, uh, you know, reward time would take? Uh, there's nothing really wrong with doing that. You have to, you incur the resources of redoing the plot, obviously. Yep. And yep. while it's replotting, it's not farming off of that. But yeah, no, you can totally just make new plots. Yeah, and in case it helps people uh, kind of gauge plotting on a 2015 MacBook Pro i7 maxed out, whatever, took 12 hours. So we're still working on improving that. We've had some gains recently on those speeds. I, I just thought it was decent. Like it wasn't, it wasn't weeks. It was half a day. So, but I'm glad you're working on it. Thank you. This is all fascinating. I appreciate your uh, answering the question. Thank you, Paradox. Next on stage, JC. Welcome. Hey, guys. So I know you're super busy, and so there's a little bit of wishful thinking on my part, but I'm wondering if there's any uh, work coming along in the next, I don't know, 30 to 60 days, preferably sooner, on uh, some of the crashes on the Windows GUI. Like, that's my biggest problem right now, is uh, I like to queue longer longer times with lots of plots, um, but very frequently when I'm doing, like, more than a day at a time, I come back to my computer and, like, the GUI is, like, toast. Yeah, we have had some issues that we're fixing as we get good repros as we figure out what's happening we've been adding in more logging so we get 
more useful information out of these things happening. Uh, yeah, so sorry about <laughs> initial bugs that we've had, and we are working on improving things. Awesome, cool. Okay, final call for questions. Welcome. Thanks for having me up. I was actually started, you know, farming chia like on the last 10 days that before you guys went to mainnet and I would appreciate it, excited for it. But I did have a question like at the cost level that I'm at, it seems like each chia token would have to be like worth like 50 bucks to make it worth it to continue farming. And I was wondering if there's a way for me to make it more efficient because I mean, I can turn over my efforts to other things, but I really believe in, uh, proof of space. Um, so I wanted to kind of support this project from the beginning. So if anyone give me some pointers as to how to make it efficient to the point where maybe it won't be just me like throwing money into right. the pot. I, I think you answered your own question, which is, you know, we, I don't think any of us know what the price is going to be. But I think that, you know, if you've been following the chat, a lot of the people that are involved in the project truly believe in the project and are not just trying to make a quick buck. So I suspect that a lot of the people that are have been investing a lot of time in the community are not just going to be selling for a very low amount on the first day. And I'm saying that from somebody who is, uh, you know, not going to do that. <laughs> yeah, you can calculate today uh, if you're buying storage today. You can make assumptions about well, if we assume that net space grows at this rate in the future, and I'm paying this amount for space, and I'm fully farming all the space that I get, what? are my returns in terms of chia per dollar that I spend now that I'm going to get out of this. So that's got a few variables that are running into it. Number one, how many dollars are you putting in for the particular amount of chia? So if you do a really good job of getting your hands on super cheap storage, that can help you. If you get your hands on storage that you'll be able to resell in the future, that helps your investment. But the other part of the question is how many dollars is a Chia going to be worth in the future? That I really have no idea whatsoever. So if that's going to be worth a huge amount, then farming today is extremely profitable. If that's going to be worth a small amount, everyone investing in farming today might get wrecked. I really am not making any predictions about where that's going to go. Well, we believe in you guys and I'm hoping for the best. You know, I just, I, the one thing is that in terms of like being able to win as a small farmer, you know, it's funny because I did some calculations. It looks like I'm like going to take like 20 years to win one of these things, but I'm looking forward to it working out. But I think uh, the community, we all are supporting you and really are hoping the best for this project. And we appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you for your question. Okay. So last question for real this time, <laughs> Jay, what do you got? Hey guys, um, interesting project. I think I remember hearing something about this about six or seven years ago, and it's really cool that it's like really turning into something. My question, I might have missed this earlier on a technical side, is what is a level of redundancy for failed hard drives? Is there a way of recovering them? Oh, you don't want to have any redundancy at all on your proofs of space. What you want with your proofs of space is Every single drive is doing its own proofs of space. And if a drive fails, the proofs of space that were on that drive just sort of die. And that's okay. Yes, in the sense of like, if you had extremely limited body power, there may be some use case where you'd want to have some redundancy like RAID or you know mirroring or backup. But as Bram said, that's missed opportunity. You're missing the expected value of using that space for farming rather than redundancy. So you know, if you actually do the math, it's almost never, ever, ever going to work out to the fact of like, why would you overspend on storage for redundancy when you could rebuild the data by plotting it again? 
I don't know if that answered your question, but. Yeah, it's uh, really interesting to look at. And I guess a follow-up question is, is there a website or a location that any of us, including myself, can go to to look more into the project? Yeah, well, there's Chia.net is the main page for the project that links off to a bunch of things. We have a wiki. There's uh, chialisp.com talks about the on-chain programming environment. There are key-based channels. There's a subreddit. <laughs> Very nice. Thank you. Okay, folks, let's talk about the future for a second. We've kind of talked about it in sort of loose terms. You know, we have one question about it, but I'm kind of genuinely curious, like, you know, beyond sort of reinventing and hopefully resolving the problems that you see with these various other consensus mechanisms, like what's the ambition for all of this? Kind of where is it going? The ambition is to really be used as money, that if people are doing like international money transfers or remittances or those kinds of things, that's sort of the low-hanging fruit, depending on exactly what you're talking about. Like I think a big hairy audacious goal we have would be that people eventually go to like the local market in Venezuela and the prices are listed in Chia, right? That would be <laughs> a good place to be. Okay. So I guess follow up to that then, looking around sort of the panoply of cryptocurrencies out there today, obviously Bitcoin is attempting to make a play for reserve currency. A lot of people think of it as money or that it will eventually be money. Do you see Chia as sort of existing alongside a competitive environment or do you think that, I mean, like, is your goal to be the winner? Bitcoin has this thing around it where people, there's this sociological, psychological, I'm not sure what to call it, but there's this thing which is gold right? Where gold doesn't act as money in any practical sense in the modern world. Like if you have some gold coins, good luck trying to just like spend those. But people hoard it and hold on to it and use it as a way of holding on to value. And Bitcoin seems to be taking over a lot of that mind share of whatever it is people get out of gold. People are getting a lot of that out of Bitcoin now, where I'm more focused on really acting as just day-to-day -day practical money rather than that thing. Yeah, and Adam, to that question you guys asked before, which was the decentralization part of Bitcoin, the network isn't secured by the amount of electricity it burns. You know, it's secured by the amount of decentralization there is. And the way that the Embram's being modest, like what they've come up with is actually insanely genius, <laughs> you know, basically using the storage capacity as a way to secure the network. It makes it more decentralized than Bitcoin. And then they have the flexibility of having on-chain programming and other stuff to make it, you know, compatible and comparable, you know, to stuff that people are doing on Ethereum with smart contracts. So, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I'm not going to understate it. We're all very excited about the, the Chia cryptocurrency. Well, that's it for this episode of Hard Problems with Bram Cohen. Thanks to our guests, J.M. Hans and Michelle Erb, for sitting in on today's session. Make sure to follow Bram Cohen, Coindesk Podcasts, our guests, and myself, Adam B. Levine, on Clubhouse and Twitter to receive notifications about future live recordings. And if you have a hard problem that you'd like BitTor and Adventure Bram Cohen to dig into, then send us an email at podcast at coindesk.com with the subject hard problem. Until next time, thank you very much for listening. Bye, everybody. Thanks, guys.